Chapter Eight of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eight, in the Assize Court. Humphrey Vargas had been six weeks in prison, and now the assizes were on at Highclere, and the self-accused murderer was to be judged. The county police had not been idle during the interval. They had hunted up witnesses and traced out various details in the history of Walter Blake's death which tended to confirm the prisoner's statement and to establish the fact of his guilt. Among the lower classes there had been some sympathy for the self-accused after the Highclere magistrates had heard his confession and committed him for trial. The murder was brutal, and Mr. Blake of Tangley Manor had been one of the most popular men in the county. Among the gentry, therefore, the general feeling was that hanging would be only too light a punishment for the murderer. But the working classes dwelt on the fact of the man's surrender of himself after twenty years, his age and infirmities, his dire poverty, the manifold temptations to which a starving wretch is liable. Radical orators in roadside beer-shops improved the occasion by denouncing the luxury and self-indulgence of the rich. "'Why, there wasn't a horse in Squire Blake's stable as wasn't better fed and better cared for than this poor critter,' said one of these village Hamdens, lashing himself into a fury. "'Horses, indeed! I should like to know what working man's home can compare with a loose box in a hunting stable.' what working man's child has as comfortable quarters as a foxhound pup ah cried the orator thumping the table the rich man may lay field to field and add house to house but at the battle of armageddon and here another thump on the table made the crockery mugs rattle and closed the speech in sublime obscurity the day had come at last when humphrey vargas was to stand in the dock and the little county town of Highclere was in a state of unusual excitement. It was a queer little old-fashioned town, a century behind the times in almost everything, a picturesque little town, with a fine old Norman gateway at each end, narrow streets in which the greater part of the houses had been standing since the days of the Tudors, streets in which the levels had undergone all manner of changes, so that while in one street the houses were elevated ten or fifteen feet above the carriageway and were approached by a raised causeway, in other thoroughfares the basement floors were sunk several feet below the level of the pavement, and one descended into the house as into a vault. Daleshire could boast of larger towns and better towns than Highclere. There was Blackford, the great iron town, and there was Avonmore, an elegant modern settlement where the wealthy Blackfordians retired from the smoke of foundries and the labour of money-making to clear air and conifer-shaded gardens and the relaxation of money-spending. There was Doldrum, the busy manufacturing town, famous for glass-cloths, round-towels and lawn-mowing machines, where there were two fine churches and a population of sixty thousand which subsisted chiefly on pork pies. But superior in size and prosperity as these might be, Highclere had merits of its own and ranked above them. Everything about it belonged to the Middle Ages. The church, the old gateways, the neighbouring castle, the grammar school, the town hall, the picturesque old one-arch bridge that spanned the narrow river, 
the verdant water-meadows and the willow-shaded streams that surrounded the town all belonged to the england which is fast passing away and people with a taste for the picturesque loved the stagnation of highclere better than the commercial prosperity of dingy blackford and pork-eating doldrum or the wealth and fashion of elegant avonmore the jail where humphrey vargas had been in close keeping ever since that october night was a building hardly worthy of the dignity of highclere there was a portion of it that was of immemorial antiquity and which archaeological societies visited and discoursed learnedly about and there was a portion which was comparatively modern having been built in the time of queen anne despite the present rage for all the architecture of that augustine era it must be confessed that the modern side of highclere jail was about as insignificant and paltry a piece of construction as ever was devised by a local architect for the disfigurement of his native town it was a square block having for its facade a flat wall level with the street and pierced with numerous narrow windows an enthusiast might have pardoned the ugliness of the edifice inasmuch as it was built of a dingy red brick scantily relieved by stone tablets above the windows but despite this unquestionable merit highclere jail was about the ugliest thing in the town and even the native mind took no pride or pleasure in it the ancient portion of the prison was at the back of this modern erection and was altogether curious and picturesque it had once been an arsenal and the massive walls were pierced with narrow loophole windows which admitted only a glimmering light into the low cells it was built on the rocky bank of a deep narrow river which rushed impetuously six feet below the foundations of the prison seen from the low ground on the other side of the stream the building looked more like a medieval stronghold than a nineteenth-century prison within there was a quadrangle in which the prisoners took their daily walks and where executions happily rare in highclere were decently performed the morning was grey and drizzly and the old town looked as dull and grey as the weather despite the unwonted excitement of a trial for murder the court was to open at eleven and at ten o'clock morton blake rode into the town and put his horse up at the peacock the old coaching inn where a range of empty stables testified to a departed prosperity but which still boasted an assembly room a professed cook gave decent dinners accommodated the sprinkling of hunting men who preferred a quiet life and plenty of space for their horses to the liveliness and fashion of avonmore and was honourably known as the best hotel in highclere morton gave his horse to the ostler and walked away through the drizzling rain without entering the inn he looked pale and careworn the last six weeks had been full of excitement and anxiety for him he had been in constant communication with the county police had followed all their movements with feverish intensity of feeling and had even employed a london detective on his own account unknown to the local police the result of this double investigation had been curiously disappointing the county police had made numerous discoveries and were convinced of the prisoner's guilt the london detective recommended as a man of exceptional intelligence and capacity had done nothing save to throw cold water upon the entire business and to express his doubt of the prisoner's guilt disgusted at so barren a result 
Morton had dismissed the man in a huff and pinned his faith on local talent. And now the day had come upon which Humphrey Vargas was to be tried for his life by a jury of his own countrymen. Morton Blake walked past the Assize Court where the trial was to be held, past the prison which lay nearer the gate of the town, under the old archway with its heraldic griffins on each side of the gate, to the stone bridge which spanned the narrow river that went brawling and gurgling over its rocky bed to find a lower level and to spread and widen at its ease in the water meadows below. From this bridge Morton could see the back of the jail, and he stood for some time leaning against the parapet and gazing at the old building, speculating as to which of yonder loopholes lighted Humphrey Vargas's cell. He knew that the prisoner was lodged in that part of the building, though he had paid no visit of mercy or curiosity to his cell. His feelings were too intense to admit of his having any intercourse with the criminal. He went back to the town and entered the court by a side door, which admitted him into one of the official rooms. He was known to all the local functionaries, and was provided with a seat on the bench from which he could survey the whole of the proceedings. The courthouse was filling fast, for this trial of Humphrey Vargas was an event which had been awaited with interest and curiosity by everyone in the neighbourhood of Osthorpe. Gentry and commonalty were alike concerned in seeing the issue of today's trial. Morton had scarcely taken his seat when Mrs. Aspinall of the Towers was ushered to a place near him, and came rustling to her seat, exhaling odours of S. bouquet, and exclaiming at the stuffiness of the atmosphere. Lord Blatchmardin and his son Lord Beville followed almost immediately, saluting Morton with friendly nods as they took their places, and seizing an early opportunity to shake hands with him and murmur something vaguely sympathetic. The body of the old hall was full of people, a crowd which overflowed at the doorway and oozed down the stone steps into the lobbies. Everybody wanted to see the prisoner, to hear what course the trial would take. Would the man plead guilty, and the whole thing be over in a quarter of an hour? Or would the evidence be sifted, and witnesses interrogated in the usual way? Popular feeling was in favour of a long and careful trial and there was considerable relief of mind when someone who was supposed to be an authority asserted that the high sheriff of the county had provided the prisoner with counsel, and that he had been instructed to plead not guilty in order that he might have a fair trial. "'There's Morton Blake,' said a big, jovial-looking man, with a bald head and large sandy whiskers, who had come late, yet had contrived to edge himself into one of the best places in the body of the hall, on a raised bench just behind the table at which the council sat. "'Looks pale and drawn, doesn't he? Takes this business very seriously to heart. And there's Mother Aspinall, grinning at the high sheriff with those false teeth of hers, and posing herself like a fashionable beauty in a photograph.' <laughs> And there's Sir Everard Courtney just come in, shaking hands with Morton, and looking like a man whose thoughts are a thousand miles away. And there's old Blatchmardin, regular old Rorer, and his son Beville, fine upstanding young fellow, the best bredden in these parts. Thus Shafto Jeb, the surgeon of Highclere, who knew everybody present and was as good as a chorus. He was a hunting man, and although his professional dealings had to do with the ills of humanity, his inclinations pointed to the stable, 
and he was more horsey in his phraseology than the average veterinary surgeon he's a handsome young man certainly answered the gentleman to whom these remarks had been addressed mr mawk a mild young curate of the advanced anglican school who had charge of the rural parish of osthorpe while his fettered spirit panted for the freedom of brighton or maida vale but i think sir everard courtenay is even more aristocratic looking what i should call the true patrician type ah, too fine drawn for my taste replied jeb i don't care for your bookish men i like a fellow who can go across country lord beville is one of the finest riders in daleshire sir everard used to hunt once used he not oh, twenty years ago yes uh, he was out on the day of blake's murder a very poor run i remember though some of us took some ticklish fences it was early in the season and the hedges were all blind you remember the day better than i remember the day before yesterday i was a gay young bachelor and could afford to keep four horses where i now keep two and hadn't to work half so hard as i do now <sighs> those were glorious days not very complimentary to mrs jebb simpered mr mawk the curate <sighs> mrs jebb is a good soul no man ever had a better wife but a man can only be young once mawk and however well things may go with him in after life he will always look back to the days of his youth with a sigh i suppose there is no question as to this man's guilt speculated mr mawk who was more interested in the proceedings of the court than in shafto jebb's opinions i'll tell you what i think about it when the trial's over answered jebb warily if i were to go into the witness-box i might be able to put some points in a new light but i'm not a witness and i don't want to be one what could you tell asked the curate eagerly do you really know anything i might elucidate a point said jebb but let it pass here comes the prisoner looks a poor doe-hearted animal doesn't he how savagely morton blake eyes him that young man is awfully vindictive every eye was now directed to the man in the dock a haggard broken-down creature with bent shoulders hollow cheeks long lean arms and grizzled unkempt hair a man who looked as if he had been acquainted with starvation and houselessness for the greater part of his life he looked round the court with a scared half-dazzled expression as of one suddenly brought from darkness into light and then seeing every eye gazing at him eager curious and unpitying he gave a shudder and sank cowering down into a heap in the chair that had been provided for him then the jury was sworn and the prisoner was arraigned in answer to the usual interrogation he pleaded not guilty and then the counsel for the crown mr canning russell q c briefly stated the facts for the prosecution how at seven o'clock on the evening of the twentieth of october just twenty years ago mr blake of tangley manor had been found by some labourers going home from their work lying dead in a ditch in osthorpe lane his skull fractured by some blunt instrument how at the coroner's inquest the medical evidence had shown that the fracture of the skull was the cause of death and that the murderer must have dragged his victim's dead body into the ditch how the watch chain and seals known to have been worn by mr blake on this day 
had been discovered three months afterwards at a pawnbroker's in the market town of great barford in the next county and how the pawnbroker who took them in pledge had been able even after the lapse of twenty years to select humphrey vargas out of six men being exercised in the yard of the prison how it would be proved to the satisfaction of the jury that the shape of the prisoner's feet notably the position of the left foot which turned inward when he walked had been found to correspond exactly with the drawings taken of footmarks in the path beside the ditch and in the field beyond it immediately after the murder how a tramp who had been hop-picking in kent with vargas a fortnight prior to the murder and had known him to be penniless at that time had met him a week after the murder in blackford and had been treated by him at a public house there and had reason to know that he was then flush of money the counsel for the prosecution then went on to say how the police had traced the career of humphrey vargas since that time in jail and out of jail an altogether disreputable and criminal existence indeed looking at the mode and manner of the man's life his associates and surroundings the wonder in most people's minds would be not that he had committed one murder but that he had not committed many the first witness called was one whose appearance in the box created considerable excitement in the court an excitement which was subdued but universal there was a hush a breathlessness a sudden concentration of everyone's attention as sir everard courtney stepped into the witness box and was sworn a remarkably handsome man murmured mrs aspinall adjusting her binoculars on her aristocratic nose and very young for his age remarkably well preserved mrs aspinall who had evaded the approach of grey hairs by dyeing her tresses a warm tawny tinge which she called titian red and had coated her wrinkles with a wash of bismuth might have said with much more truth that sir everard looked young because he was not preserved at all having done nothing to disguise the progress of years and looking handsomer with his silvered hair and beard than any man ever looked with dyed hair or a wig sir everard being interrogated told in fewest words how humphrey vargas had come to him on the evening of october the twentieth and had voluntarily made the statement which he sir everard had written down and which the prisoner had afterwards signed in the presence of john jackson the constable mr tomplin counsel for the prisoner asked the witness if vargas had been drinking when he made this statement sir everard no the man was to all appearance perfectly sober mr tomplin and there was nothing wild or excited about his manner sir everard i should describe his manner as dogged rather than excited i was at first inclined to pooh-pooh his statement believing the whole thing to be a trumped-up business and that he would recant next day i afterwards warned him that it was a very serious matter and that he was putting a rope round his neck he was a miserable half-starved looking creature and i thought that he'd been driven by desperation to give himself in charge for an imaginary offence mr tomplin did he impress you as a man who was mentally weak sir everard no he spoke rationally enough and he resolutely adhered to his first statement mr tomplin you were a friend of the murdered man i believe sir everard yes we were friends of long standing mr tomplin 
and you rode by his side part of the way home from the hunt sir everard no i was not among the gentlemen who rode homewards with him as far as the crossroads after the kill i went home earlier and by a different way mr tomplin when and where did you last see him sir everard on giltspur common after a sharp run of twenty minutes or so when the hounds were at fault and we waited about a little mr tomplin did you speak to him sir everard yes we talked together for a few minutes mr tomplin was he in his usual health and spirits sir everard looked at the judge with a bored expression as who should say that this kind of interrogation might go on all day to no apparent end or aim mr tomplin was a youngish man five-and-thirty at most who had only lately begun to get briefs and whose enthusiasm required to be kept in check really now said the judge i cannot quite see the drift of these questions you cannot surely mean to suggest that mr blake committed suicide that a gentleman split his own skull with a cudgel and then laid himself down in a ditch after picking his own pockets no my lord but i wish to show that mr blake may have had an enemy that this murder which startled all the country round and which for twenty years has been a mystery may have been prompted by stronger and more subtle passions than the sordid craving for gain i should like the jury to hear something of mr blake's circumstances and surroundings before his death sir everard with a contemptuous smile mr blake was in his usual health he appeared to be in particularly good spirits he conversed freely with his friends mr tomplin did you who were his intimate friend know of any domestic or social trouble in which he was involved at this time sir everard i should say that his domestic surroundings were rather enviable than otherwise he had been some years a widower he had three children to whom he was strongly attached and his house was kept for him by his maiden sister one of the most amiable women in daleshire mr tomplin yet there might have been secret trouble i am obliged to touch upon a most delicate subject and i wish to approach it with all possible respect is it not a fact sir everard that mr blake was one of lady courtney's most ardent admirers sir everard when lady courtney was miss alice rothney she had numerous admirers i believe mr blake was among them mr tomplin but he conquered his passion when she married you do i understand that there was never any uncomfortable feeling between you and mr blake after your marriage sir everard mr blake and i were on friendly terms till the day of his death i have told you that already i shall be glad sir if you can keep my dead wife's name out of this inquiry it can have no possible bearing on the case the judge here intervened and ruled that the line which the cross-examination was taking was irrelevant and must be pursued no further humphrey vargas's deposition was now read amidst breathless silence and then john dyke a bricklayer's labourer was sworn 
Mr. Canning Russell. You were one of the men who found Mr. Blake's body. Will you tell the jury exactly what happened to you? John Dyke. Me and my mate, Joe Daffles, was going home after our day's work at Farmer Twycross's at Osthorpe. We'd been working a bit late, for we was putting up a new brewhouse, and Muster Twycross was in a fantig to get it up in time for his October brewing, and he'd made it agreeable to us to work an hour or two overtime. So, as you see, it were after dark when we was a-going home by Osthorpe Lane. There was a moon up, a newish sort of moon that didn't give much light, but just enough for us to see objects in the road, and we was a-jogging along like a bit slow, being as we was tired, when my mate sees something in the ditch, just at the very identical moment as my eye were caught by a smashed hat lying in a puddle on the other side of the road, close to Blatchmardin Copse. "'What's this here in the ditch?' says he, scared like. "'Is it a dog or a man?' and he plunges in without more ado, and me after him, and between us drags out something smothered with mud and weeds. It was a man, sure enough. We thought at first as it might be somebody that had been overcome with liquor, and had fallen asleep on the bank, and rolled into the ditch promiscuous-like. But when we got him out into the road, we could see his red coat and brass buttons, and his top boots, and we knowed it was a gent as had been hunting, which a few yards further on we finds his whip lying alongside the footpath. Well, we makes pretty sure as how he'd gone at the hedge, and his horse had throwed him and just landed him clean in the ditch. Anyway, he was dead, that was clear enough. So my mate ran back to Osthorpe to get help, while I sat down beside the body. He comes back in less than an hour with the constable and another man and a lantern and a shutter to carry the body on, and no sooner does the constable hold the lantern alongside the dead man's face than he sings out, It's Squire Blake of Tangley Manor. Here's a dreadful piece of business, throwed from his horse and killed on the spot. For at first, you see, he thought exactly like us. Well, we up with the body and laid it on the shutter and carried it home to Tangley Manor, where we was handsomely recompensed for our trouble. Mr. Russell. Your mate is dead, I understand. John Dyke. Oh, yes, sir. Poor old Joe took and died seven year ago last Christmas. There never was such a Martha to sciatics as Joe were afore he were took. Mr. Russell. That will do. The next witness was Dr. Brudenell of Highclere, a formal old gentleman of a fast expiring species, the ancient family practitioner. He gave his evidence in a lofty and grandiose manner, and used as many scientific and technical words as he could possibly employ, in order to inform the jury that Mr. Blake had died from the effects of wounds inflicted on the head by a blunt instrument, most probably a stake or a cudgel. There had been three wounds, all of a severe character and sufficient to account for death. There was no doubt in Dr. Brudenell's mind that the deceased expired almost immediately from the effects of one or all of those wounds, and that he was a dead man when he fell or was thrown into the ditch. 
in cross-examination mr tomplin asked whether such wounds might not have been caused accidentally by a fall if mr blake had tried to jump the hedge into the road and had been flung violently out of his saddle dr brudenel i have no hesitation in saying that it would be impossible for three such wounds to be inflicted accidentally nor have i any hesitation in saying that no hunting man would take such a jump as you suggest in cold blood riding home after a day's sport no judicious rider would take it at any time as there is a drop of five feet into a hard road mr tomplin uh, you told us just now that in your opinion the wounds were inflicted by a cudgel or a stake now would not a wound inflicted by a stake be of a very different character from that caused by a cudgel dr brudenel there would be a difference certainly mr tomplin a marked difference would there not dr brudenel the wound inflicted by a stake would be jagged the flesh would be much abraded supposing the edge of the stake to be sharp and pointed the blow from a cudgel would cause a contused wound mr tomplin now dr brudenel were not these wounds obviously caused by a stake dr brudenel that was my impression at the time an impression which was in some manner borne out by the subsequent discovery of a hole in a bank about a quarter of a mile from the scene of the murder from which a stake had evidently been recently pulled up apparently with violence or haste mr tomplin was the spot in question nearer osthorpe than the scene of the murder dr brudenel oh nearer the highclere road the counsel for the defence scored a point by dr brudenel's evidence humphrey vargas had described himself as striking mr blake with a cudgel this suggestion of a stake torn from a hedge near the scene of the murder introduced a new element of doubt into the case End of chapter eight